And so when you enter into a space that's not designed for you and not designed for you to thrive and as a space that's been dehumanizing you and your people, because especially for folks who may be new to the conversation, um, there's a deep mistrust, right? That people of color have with the medical um, system. I am so incredibly excited you're all joining me this week. I cannot put into words how much I admire today's guest and how much I think, you know, she, Latham Thomas, calls herself a maternity lifestyle maven. And I personally call herself a revolutionary for women, particularly for Black women. She's a world-renowned wellness leader, a master birth doula, and the best-selling author on the vanguard of transforming the wellness movement called Own Your Globe. Named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, Latham's journey began after giving birth to her son Fulano in 2003 and founding Mama Globe. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Latham, I am so honored you're joining us here today. Wow, I'm so happy to be here, Allah. So you and I met, I don't know if you remember this, a couple of years ago at the Social Good Summit. We sat yep. on a panel together and talked yep. about reproductive rights and maternal mortality. And I left, It's and this happens to me very rarely. Normally when I'm speaking, I want to make sure that I'm saying things properly so my listening ears are not always on. I, I want to make sure that I'm being accountable for what I'm putting out there. But it was one of the few times where I sat on a panel and I was like, well, I really wish I was not on this panel. I really want to hear all of this. Like I want to, I want to get to just sit with all of what you're saying because mm. it was so powerful. That's what I felt about you. And I was like, oh my God, we have to be friends. But we are friends now. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's the first time we've spoken in years, but we're best friends. It's That's just it. happened. It is what it is now. <laughs> Um, so Latham, before I start every interview, I ask guests if they could, in two different words, tell me how you're feeling today. Mm. Expansive. Yeah. And I would also say um, hopeful, but also tired. <laughs> Hopefully tired. <laughs> also what tired. Expansive. Well, you know, I feel that um, 
this moment that we're in is um, calling us to utilize skill sets that we have inside, um, also asking us to unpack things that we've carried for a long time, a lot of which isn't even our own, and, um, and to like lay it down and unpack it and look at it and release it and, um, and keep what we need to, to, to keep moving on. And I feel that when we do that work, that allows us to expand, allows us to open. And so I'm feeling like um, the real call, especially in this moment where there's an assault on, on Black life, there's an assault on, I mean, our human existence, right, um, daily. And those of us who are engaged in problem solving and solution, and uh, we have to be oriented towards hope. It has to be part of our compass mm-hmm. um, orientation, right? And so, but in order to stay, in order to stay in that, I think we have to be in a position of releasing, of opening, and um, and being a portal for um, energy to move through, for God consciousness to move through, and and wow. to feed us. And so. I do feel that. I feel the pouring in happening. I feel the washing over happening. I feel the releasing happening. And, um, and so I do feel hopeful, but I also feel tired because I think that every, every opportunity that we have to engage in, in anything that connects us, right, in terms of media or information, it is draining, it is it like, is. as soon as you turn something on, it's like, oh, I didn't want to, I didn't tune, I didn't turn this on to hear that. You know what I mean? And it's all the time. And I'll even get texts from people before I've heard something come out in the news. Yeah. And they're like, I hope you're okay. And I'm like, oh my God. What is it now? Right? So yeah. that's, that's, that's the exhausting part. Oh, I hear you. So everything that you're, you're talking about, you know, I, I have joked around with people for the past few months saying, I find zoom and kind of this complete lack of connection while we're all trying to still trying to do really powerful work exhausting i find it very difficult because you don't even have that kind of sense of community that a lot of us get that power from Mm -hmm. and everything you're talking about about expanding and allowing you know allowing yourself to look at what exists in front of you take what works fix what doesn't Mm. you know release some of it allowing it to wash over you all of that isn't passive that's active work. That takes energy. That takes time. That takes power. That takes, that takes, you know, it it takes so much out of you. Where do you find, you know, before we get to your personal story and what drove you to do this work, where do you find the energy and, and the conviction to continue to do it when it, when it can be just so tiring? Mm. I mean, I just think, I feel it's God, you know, I, I think that um, it's just really like, you know, when we show up for me, it's like, um, so I kind of just like have these conversations, like we're talking right now with like my grandmother who's passed on Mm -hmm. or, um, other ancestors. I'll just write, like, I'll just kind of speak to them. Like we're talking. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think for me too, I always imagine myself, um, not by myself, but like, um, like flanked, right. Like covered and that someone's here and, ordering my steps and helping me to get it, get everything done so that I don't really feel like it's me as a human doing it alone. But, um, as a human, you know, my spirit is, is, um, 
really buoyed, you know, mm-hmm. like, I feel like I'm like, I feel like I'm afloat by the prayers that my grandmother has made for me my whole life. I feel like I'm hovering because mm-hmm. of the work of other people too, that are earth angels. But I really feel like God is like lifting me because there are certain things that I feel like um, we have the capacity for as humans. And then I think that um, when it becomes too much, um, if we make ourselves supple, um, I feel like God enters and just says, okay, let me just, let me like let me show you how to, yes, let me show you where to go. Yeah. And so I think that when some things get to be intense and I'm like, okay, I got to you know, step back and pour into myself and do what I need to, to take care of, of myself personally so that that can ripple out. Um, it's like all like autopilot, not autopilot, like I'm not doing it with consciousness, but it's like this internal force that's like, You're okay, let me faith. do it. Yes. Yeah. I'm really just allowing God to, to really, you know, um, maneuver me in that way. And, and so then I become an instrument because I think um, trying to think your way through or power through or force um, is really not, we're like not designed to do that. And I think that mm-hmm. because we've all bought into rugged individualism and capitalism, like we, we sever ourselves from this body connection. And, um, and so that I, I feel like everything is informed by the body, right? And this mm-hmm. experience of what we're feeling and we live into these experiences, there's um, information and there's storytelling and, and there's an opportunity, I think, for growth um, and expansion, right, rather than constriction. Mm-hmm. I think we all feel constriction right now. And, and I imagine what it feels like for so many of us right now is that we're writhing in a pot that we've outgrown. If you've ever seen like these beautiful plants that are like yeah. tethered to pots and then you actually finally repot it and it's just like wound into itself. I feel like many people probably feel this right now, right? Like they feel like- incredible. Right, like writhing. And yeah. so- if it's I've never pictured it that way. My mother is an avid gardener. Like mm. we joke, she's had, she has 11 kids. Um, oh my gosh. Wow. What kids. a blessing. Yeah. No. And, and I joke that the only thing she loves more than her kids is her plants. And she doesn't wow. completely unjokingly will look at me and be like, yes, yes, that's, that's not incorrect. <laughs> my plants that. and my grandkids now, but, but I've never pictured. And I think it's such a uh, for visual people like me and in, an incredibly interesting and powerful way to put it that the roots when you like I, I my mom always repots and repots and repots plants and you know the visual of that the, the roots kind of combined barely any soil all of that and then I think the relief of being in that bigger pot of having mm. the space to grow and having the space to expand but but this is where I, I, I want to ask you a question that I that I often wonder about in today's world, as we're, you know, and, and racial injustice is not new. This is a historic right. reality. And you are somebody who has lived your whole life mm-hmm. with that, it, with that personal and immediate knowledge and firsthand education. You didn't need to sit sure. in a classroom and learn about it. You didn't need to read a book about it. You didn't need to join protests or, or learn that players were, you know, going on strike. This is a daily reality of your life. And particularly as a black mother, it has, mm-hmm. it is life or death in unique ways. Yeah. And so was that what ushered you into becoming a, a, a wellness leader and, a, and a, a birth doula or, or was that a, like, what was that journey? Can you, mm-hmm. can you take us on that? Yeah. So it's so interesting because a lot of people find their way to work 
through experiences of trauma or difficulty, right? And for me, it was the opposite. So um, I had a really um, interesting, I would say, childhood upbringing around um, body literacy and um, the expression of birth and and, and power of um, what do you mean by that? Body. Interesting. Well, my mom, um, you know, was pregnant when I was four years old, and my great aunt and my um, and then my mom's brother's uh, wife, who was my aunt, they were all three pregnant at the same time, due within a month of each other. And so I'm just like four years old, fascinated seeing these bellies, learning about the body, learning about birth. And so my mom, she put on this show called My Mom's Having a Baby. It was on PBS. So I watched that. And, um, and then I learned so much about the birth process through that. Then she taught me anatomy. And so I knew all of the parts, right? And so um, this is when most to... four-year-olds still think babies come from the supermarket. <laughs> right. Or the belly. Right. And my mom was like, no, it's, you know, she taught me like what the uterus could do. And, you know, wow. so I understood that my, my sister was inside of a, a sack inside of my mother's uterus. And so, you know, these types of things, right. Where, you know, she just knew like, yeah, you can talk to her like an adult and teach her the things that she should know. So she doesn't have to, we don't have to course correct later. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I had that kind of consciousness at an early age and, and this, this understanding that, um, the body was a, a safe space and a sacred space. And, um, and that, uh, my mother also taught us, um, you know, about like, she was really free. Like she was always like, you know, naked in the house and, and, you know, just really free about like, you know, not with people around, but just like with us mm-hmm. and was very like about us being comfortable with our bodies and, you know, and the differences in our bodies. So we got to see, um, body variability at the mm-hmm. age. Um, and then she breastfed me for a long time and so proud of that. And it was very helpful in my uh, experience in the postpartum period with breastfeeding. Um, and so I think like all of that was very um, rudimentary and, and mm-hmm. fundamental in, in sort of like shaping a path forward. I would say in addition to that, I had this um, learning with the master herbalist at an early age who could help me learn about plant systems and botany and and um, that was really helpful in learning that about the power of plants. It was and, like this one we went to the farmer's market. She was like a friend <laughs> from the farmer's market that we connected with. Yeah. And it was awesome. Like, where I does one so find a master herbalist? <laughs> yeah. It was, in California, you know, it's like, we're like, I think California is like decades ahead of every place else, especially New York, right? Where you think like New York is like the place where everything happens. And, and it is in many ways, like culturally and, and, um, you know, I would say arts and, and things like that. Right. But then when you talk about like food and wellness and all the kind of cool things that are like just at surface now in, in bigger cities, like we were doing in California when I was growing up, you know? And so all the things that I grew up doing when I came to New York, I was like, this is just now popular here. Like we've been doing this. This was considered corny when I was growing up, you know? So um, okay, you're like, we're so, pioneers. We, yeah. Like, I knew master herbalist when I was 10. I got yeah. you. Guys. I'll teach and I'm you. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. So things like this, you know, like just having that awareness, but also where I came from in Oakland, there was a legacy already of resistance, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, where my mother grew up, um, 9315 Burr Street, she had moved to California as a teenager. Um, her mother moved out there. And so she, her high school years in California, 
and junior high to high school, I would say, in that block, in that mm-hmm. like three block radius was um, the, the, the beginnings of the Black Panther Party. So everybody lived over there. Hugh P. Newton lived down the street. Angela Davis lived next door to my mother. So there was like, wow. a, there was a rich kind of, um, I think, soil bed of, of resistance, right? And of, um, of community consciousness and community care that I think also like bled into mm-hmm. how we designed our communities and also how we would learn to grow up and show up for our communities. And so I think that was also part of my, um, I would say like the, the organic soil matter that helped me to become who I am. And so that kind of experience of having, you know, my mom basically going to, you know, she was bullied as a child, you know, in high mm-hmm. school. And so she would go hang out and Angela Davis would like affirm her that she was cool, that she was a nerd and all this stuff, you know, yeah. and she invited her to seek at her poly science class. And the school said, no, of course, but, um, you know, because they were like really getting to their, their thing at that point. Um, but I think like that kind of, so that all of that stuff was like part of the stew and, um, and fast forward, I think the real experience for me was when I had my son, when I became pregnant, I was living in New York and I knew how to do the process in California, right? Like I knew where I would go there. If I was to deliver there, I knew exactly how I would do it because I felt really rooted from home, but I was living in New York. So I didn't navigate everything differently and there was no internet. And so everybody thinks like, you know, I mean, we're on Zoom now. This is like unthinkable when my son was yeah. born. There was no looking at somebody on a screen. And um, like that didn't happen, you know? And um, this idea of doing a, um, a Google search, right? When my son, when I was pregnant, like you could, but it was like really not, not very easy. helpful. <laughs> no, not helpful, not easy. And, um, and there was only a handful of websites that really like addressed um, birth. And certainly not, you know, anything specific to what my experience would look like. Right. And so, um, that was interesting for me to see that there was not a lot of supports necessarily, not a lot of, um, sort of culturally, uh, appropriate, you know, care, um, you know, in terms of what I could find. Right. So I had to like navigate it on my own and, and, um, and I ended up finding a birth center on 14th Street in the city in New York. And uh, my son was born there and I had midwives, you know, present. It was beautiful. But that experience for me was so transformative because I had like an out-of-body experience where my ancestors appeared and everyone who was there remembers like how powerfully potent it was. But shortly after that, I was like, okay, this is something I have to protect. I have to help people in this process because nobody said that it would be this. And Mm -hmm. if it could be this, then what is it that people are having, you know, behind those doors in hospitals? If I'm having this experience and they're telling me that they've had a horrifying experience, like where is this disconnect? Like, and how can we, you know, change things? So I was very thankful that I had one that was um, an experience that was affirmative and that kind of propelled me forward to seek similar outcomes for other people Mm-hmm. versus having a traumatic experience, having to be in constant dialogue with healing that wound and then comes to the other side, right? So for me, I didn't have um, trauma, thankfully, um, but I have experienced it through other people's, you know, um, birthing experience. 
or just like in our doula training, so many people come that have had pain and trauma and, and have not been validated in their humanity and they come to heal that. Right. So they could be Mm -hmm. of service. So I see it in so many different ways. Yeah. Lathan, you know, I, I actually had my first child about eight months ago and, um, and I, I went to medical school. I'm not somebody who is foreign to the body or anatomy. And my, my dad is a doctor. I'm a doctor. Like I, I, I intimately know hospitals. And for me, yeah. it was such an overwhelming experience mm. where, where, uh, where most of the people I spoke to had very, you know, before I had a child had very negative experiences or right. felt like they hadn't been hurt or hadn't been cared for or hadn't been. Um, and I, I love where, where you say, you know, treated, you know, as humans and validating their human because treated as human, you know, a lot of them kind of really, and I remember before, before having my daughter, people would be like, yeah, no, don't the first few months you feel like a cow. You know, I, when I was in the hospital, I felt like X and everything sounded so negative that before I had her, I went up to my husband and I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure about this. This is not, you know, this doesn't sound like it's going to be fun. Mm. And so to hear that in 2003, you had had kind of that that soil, as you mentioned, to say like, I'm going to go and seek out a good experience, a better experience, a spiritual experience, because this is a moment where I need to protect my body and what my body is capable of, um, is incredible because that foresight, I think is what many of us don't, don't necessarily consider or bring to the table all the time. Um, when, when it's, when it's childbirth. So you, after having your son then decided, okay, I need to train other women other doulas to, to be able to create that safe and supportive environment for other women? Well, first it really started with like me saying, what do I need to do? Right. To get to a place to support others. And, um, and so doing that first, which, which took a while, right? Like me finding my way to the work and then being able to do the work um, and then getting to a place where it was like, okay, it's beyond me. It's bigger than me. And I think um, that moment, there was like sort of like a watershed moment, right? When we had a few seminal pieces of, um, of, well, yeah, journalism that came. And that was a New York Times piece that uh, Linda Bellarosa wrote about um, um, maternal mortality. And then there was a ProPublica piece right after that. And then it was like, suddenly the floodgates were open and everybody had the spotlight on black maternal health. Mm-hmm. And it's been, and the, and the light's been on since like 2017, 2018, people have been like, okay, what's going on? So I remember um, it was probably like January, 2018. And I said, okay, I'm gonna launch the training this year. And I was so afraid actually and between, was, but between 2003 and 2018, you were doing a lot of this work. Doing the work. Individually. With individually. Women, with communities. Yeah, doing all of that. And, but then also it's like one of those things where you can't take on every client, right? And so it's like, mm-hmm. how do I build a, a force of people who work like I do and who have the similar philosophy? It's like, I have to train them, right? And so, um, I, but I felt also afraid to do that. And so it took me until April, right? I was supposed to launch it in January and they kept pushing it off, pushing it off. April came and um, my fiance was like, Latham, 
you have to just, you have to just do it. And I was like, okay. I said, all right, well, I said, let's just do it in June. And so I kept pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. So then it was May. What were you afraid of? Just like, I don't know what the fear was. Like nobody will come. Um, something new. I'm a tourist. Mm-hmm. I don't like change. So it was like, oh, I'm a tourist. I don't like change. <laughs> we don't like change. You know, so I was like, I just don't want to. I don't want to do it. Like I wanted to do it, but I didn't, you know? And, and then I knew that if I like just said, let's go, that I'd be forced to do it. And so anyway, long story short, um, in May, I hadn't launched it yet. And he's like, Latham, you have to do it today. I was like, okay, fine. And so I remember <laughs> like, I, I put the flyer up on Instagram, like whatever, just like maybe five people will sign up who, you know, whatever. I put it up online and there was so much excitement. It sold out in two days. And then yeah. we launched another one, it sold out another one. And so we kept putting out these courses almost like supreme drops, you know, like mm-hmm. here's another one, here's another one, you know, and we just kept courses launching. Focused, were the courses meant for women who were people who are already doulas or were no, they to, to take people on their, to initiate mm-hmm. them into their doula journey. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It, it was like, it, it, I was like channeling what needed to be taught. I mean, I developed, I developed a curriculum, but then it was like, well, how do I make this an experience? And mm-hmm. I just knew what to do and it was beautiful. And we had this format and we were rocking until um, early 2020. And our last training in person was um, March uh, 6th Mm -hmm. through 8th, 2020. And then we shifted to um, digital and we taught uh, at least once a month since March and digital, we just, or yeah, sometimes twice. And we just um, now we're heading into the fall with our trainings, but it was incredible. And honestly, you know, had it not been for COVID, we would not have switched to online as quickly. We would have waited. Um, but mm-hmm. th- this allowed us to reach people in different places. It, it allowed for more um, intergenerational learning. It allowed for yeah. people from all different walks of life. And so I'm so thankful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so thankful. I think that's, you know, I think it's one thing. Um, my mom always says leaders, you know, they don't, they don't create followers. They create other leaders. That's how, you know, mm-hmm. someone's a true leader. And yes. I think it's so powerful that your response to having done this work and to seeing the injustice and, you know, was not okay. Let me, let me try to take more on myself. Let me try to fix everything for everyone and be everything. But right. it was more, we need to create other people who can be vehicles of support yes. and trust and love and, and compassion um, in this moment. Now, I, I want to move, you know, your son now is 17, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So you are the mother, you know, you're faced with the reality of black maternal mortality in, in yes. the US. And I would love for you to tell us um, about your your work there, because you are the expert on that. And, and to really kind of enlighten a lot of our listeners who may not know as intimately what it means to be a black mother in America. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of straddling two areas right now. So with a 17-year-old son um, who is fully, you know, I mean, he has total agency to, to sort of make life decisions and choices that don't depend on me, right? Like he is free thinking and um, capable of going out in the world and, and looking after himself. And, um, and it's exciting. It's also terrifying, you know, like when he leaves, I'm not, I don't rest until he's home. 
And so um, if that means that he's out, like even, even when he's with his father, I don't rest. And, um, you know, he went on vacation with his dad. And so then I was like, well, thinking all these things about like, well, what if this and what if that, like, mm -hmm. which I shouldn't be thinking and I have to, right? And then of course, when anytime there's an assault on, you know, black life that, you know, at the hands of state violence, I'm reminded that I have a son. And, and I, I really feel like that this information, right, that we see, um, whether it's through social or on the news, these horrifying videos, which I don't, I refuse to watch, you know, because I feel like it's um, participating in a culture of lynching that's been going on for hundreds of years mm -hmm. that is used to control and used to um, create fear and, and to really keep us in our place and remind us that this can happen to you, right? And the more that we internalize these images and the more that we um, desensitize ourselves to what we see, um, the more we become, I think, uh, you know, I think, I, think it, I think it does two things. I think for the people who witness it, who are from these communities, I think it continues to break them down. It continues to weather mm -hmm. them. And I think for the people who watch it, who are of, who are non-Black and, and are in other communities, I think it desensitizes. I don't think, I think it can make some people be, come to action, but like, that's the point. Like there's that. When you're going to come to action. Line, is your like your line is when you on their neck. Yeah. Like you have that's to physically when see it. Yeah. You just physically see someone be shot seven times. It's like, no. So, so I refuse to, to watch that. And I don't, I don't um, have my son watch these things because also I want to raise him to be liberated and, and to know that, um, that he deserves that and that, that we're fighting for that, for, for him and his generation to, to be free. Right. And mm -hmm. so, um, so that's one side, right? So, so there's that and it's real and the signaling is real. And then on the other side, when we're talking about birth and obstetrical violence, and when we're talking about, um, you know, the, the experiences people have of neglect, of, of how, you know, white supremacy shows up in medical spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure you have your own countless stories of things that you've experienced in these spaces, right? Of, um, you know, it, it's, it start, I mean, there's a like an umbrella of white supremacy, right? So that includes racism, that includes sexism, that includes, you know, really centering, um, you know, like sort of the white male body as the, um, as not just dominant, but as the, uh, like standard, right? Mm -hmm. or, as the or, object. As the object, but standard for everything. Like, so if we're going to do medical study, it is on the white male body, right? Mm -hmm. If we're going to test anything like that, this is who gets the benefit first, right? In terms mm -hmm. of, um, you know, like that we want to protect them, right? And so, you know, when you're in these spaces, um, it also looks like um, it's a neglect, um, inconsistent providers, inconsistent care. You know, it can look like, um, you know, uh, transphobia, it can be fat phobia, um, ageism, ableism, like all of these are extensions of, of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and what we're taught about, um, you know, our, um, like basically how we don't belong. And so when you enter into a space that's not designed for you and not designed for you to thrive and as a space that's been dehumanizing you and your people, because especially for folks who 
maybe new to the conversation, um, there's a deep mistrust, right, that people of color have with the medical um, system. And when I say this, I'm not talking about like individual doctors, I'm talking about a system, right? Like many of us will say, well, no, I really love my doctor. And I have doctors who I love and trust like with my life, right? But, they're, but I'm talking about a system, right? That has um, perpetuated harm for hundreds of years. And in, in the case of, um, you know, uh, gynecology and obstetrics, this is an area where, um, you know, black bodies were used to advance medicine. Um, it, if, it, if it hadn't been for chattel slavery, um, there would not have been a reason to advance gynecology because it advanced so that there could be a, a new generation of, of enslaved people um, born, right? So that we could continue to advance um, the, uh, the economic um, investment of the people who were, um, were invested in, in slavery. And so it meant to make sure that you could repair the pathologies and treat the pathologies in, in enslaved um, black women for the benefit of white women, but also treating them so that they could be healthy enough to continue to bear children, right? Which was a return on your investment. And so we think about this as like the beginnings. And then what, that, what did that mean? That mean that there was a lot of um, medical um, uh, treatments developed, a lot of medical and scientific um, study uh, testing, all done without anesthesia, all done without consent. And so you have this as a, as a foundational um, uh, practice, right? So fast forward hundreds of years, it's like there's never been a reckoning. There's never been like a, a conversation about like, hmm, we did a lot of things wrong here. There's never been a a, a sense of autonomy over our bodies, right? As black yeah, women have never autonomy. been a sense of acknowledgement. Yeah. Acknowledgement, but also still to this day, autonomy. Like that my body actually is its own um, space. And that for you to be able to practice, you have to enter into my space. And so what does that mean? Like the, what is the conversation? You know, what are the, what are the uh, protections in place for me? What's mm -hmm. my patient advocacy safety net, you know, if something goes wrong, like all of these things, right? So I think that becomes the issue. And then again, bringing it back to having this black child and being in this world where we're seeing all of this violence, then you have these things happening behind closed doors. You have people dying on operating tables. You have people, you know, not making it home after delivery or getting home and not making it through the week. You have people that these horrifying things are happening too. And yet it's not on video, but we hear mm -hmm. about it. We hear about the reports, we hear about the neglect, we hear about the lack of care. And we are reminded as pregnant black people or as mothers or as people of the community that this can happen to you. Mm -hmm. And so it's signaling, just like it's signaling when we see lynching, mm -hmm. it's signaling. And so you have all these people who are pregnant right now in this time of COVID getting you know, not the best care necessarily, you know, really anxious about what their birth will look like. And they have to also like hold this as a reality, which is so sad to like have to hold that as a reality in this and living in these times. And so um, I think so what's so important is conversations like we're having, right? Is, mm -hmm. is to show that there are people who have, you know, been exposed to, lived through, um, you know, a system like this, right? Like that you've, you've been trained, 
in, in the system, right? But also, you know that there's things that have to be fixed and you know that there's things that we can do. And instead of saying like, I'm going to turn my head and be over here with my colleagues, right? Or like, I'm going to turn my head and be over here with the other police, right? No, instead, I'm going to say like, we can face this. We can integrate. We can work together. We can be solution oriented, which is what you've done. I mean, this is what you do in your, in your work. I was actually just, um, as you were, as you were answering that question, there was a powerful quote that you said, um, and I was going through to find it about you serving as the point of comfort and the point of power in a woman's most vulnerable time. And I found that to be such a incredible, because I, you know, I think that we need to redefine our definitions of power. I think we need Mm. to recognize that compassion and vulnerability and, um, and empathy are very powerful traits. Yes. And, yes. and so that quote from you stuck with me. And, and as I was, you know, before our interview, kind of looking through some of the things you said, I thought it is incredible. Even what you said earlier about like, I'm a Taurus, I don't like change. This marriage of this incredibly powerful voice, someone who is, you're, you're not, you're not um, oblivious to what's happening in the world. You are not surprised by what's happening in the world, but you are so proactive. And you are so, you, you, you amplify other people's agency for women who don't feel as though they have power. You do empower them. And that's not a word I love using very much because it right. implies that we need somebody else to, but, but there are moments mm-hmm. in, in your most vulnerable, in your most difficult, in your most insecure, where having somebody else in the room to champion you, to say everything mm-hmm. is going to be okay, to say your voice matters is so powerful. And when it comes to, when it comes to black mothers in America, I mean, in parts of the country, it is a four to one chance that they will lose their life compared mm-hmm. to white mothers during mm-hmm. childbirth. Recently, I think only last week, a study came out that said black babies delivered to black doctors actually do have better chances of survival. Yeah. That is critical. This is empirically based. This isn't, you know, oh, my doctor was mean to me. This is the data specifically showing that you are at greater risk because of the color of your skin. And so when mothers do come up to you and they say, listen, Latham, I get everything you're saying. I'm going to be compassionate with myself. I'm going to bring my ancestors along. I'm going to find faith in myself, but the system, the system is not meant for me. Mm -hmm. And, and that is where they have a mental block and a physical block. What do you do? What do you say to those women? And what honestly do you say to those working in the system? Yeah. So a lot of where I approach people is where they are, right? So you'll have some people who may not at all be thinking about what could possibly occur, right? And so I like to give like a a sort of map right, for what the journey could entail. I like to get a sense through activities together, um, you know, where people are in, in terms of using the power of their voice and, and how they use their voice. And so I can kind of gather a lot of things in some of our, you know, meetings and stuff to see like where they are with, um, you know, their, their comfort in their skin, but also in their power. And, um, and then some people right away will tell you what their fears are. These are questions that we ask early on in the journey so I can get a sense of how to 
shape the um, the education for them and and the journey. And um, I think a lot of people are at a place where they're just like, I'm I'm afraid because everywhere that you look, there's information and storytelling that tells you that you should be afraid. But um, my job, I think, is not to continue to perpetuate the fear or sort of like allow it to anchor. I think it's important to feel it and to know that it exists and to also know that um, it does not have to overpower you because you have to know also that the fear manifests in, um, like you talked about action, right? It takes action in the process and in your body in a way that you don't want for the process to unfold, right? And so, um, so I really want people to actually lean into joy. And so, because we cannot really control an outcome, we can prepare ourselves for how we'll meet the circumstances that show up. And so a lot of that means advocacy, education, you know, role playing, um, helping them to navigate and understand how the system functions, you know, but also really empowering people to make a choice because like you said, it's not like actually handing over something that you don't have inside. It's more like helping you to unlock it, right? It's like sometimes when you're, um, like if you've ever been in um, like, you know, like sometimes when you know how there's those little kitty gates and you're on one side and you're trying to like unhook it from one you can't see, somebody else can just like, oh, here, they're on the other side, right? Yeah. And they unhook it for you and you're like, suddenly you can, you know, oh, thank you so much. You're like, you're there, you know what's on the other side, but you might need somebody to just help with that. And so it's like just helping them unlock something that they already mm -hmm. have inside. But, but what it is too, is it's like, once they really get comfortable in, in exploring and learning and, and getting comfortable with the information, a lot of it also is like, you know, doing and being a part of a tradition that was not afforded mm -hmm. our ancestors. And so what does that look like? Because now that your babies are your own, right? Like your babies are not getting carted off someplace, not gonna be separated. Yeah you're going to take home your babies and uh, really something that our ancestors could not ever uh, rest well and know that they would have family. Mm -hmm. And so you get to design for and, and, and dream into uh, a possibility um, that's anchored in joy. And so I want people to be seeking pleasure during their, during their pregnancies. I want them to be engaged with dialogue and with, um, with useful and helpful information, but not to sort of engage in trauma porn, you know? Mm -hmm. I think, that, um, you know, I really struggle honestly with um, amplifying stories and, you know, the frequency that I do that. And because what people don't realize is, you know, having these very conversations and, and engaging in this actual work in the way that we do is harmful to us you know, like who have to do it. It's like, it's a lot to hold. We have to process, like you said in the beginning, like we have to let go um, and it's heavy. And so when I talk about like the exhaustion, it's um, collective emotional weight, collective emotional mm -hmm. warning, collective emotional trauma that I like hook into. And in order for me to stay light and like be able to live in a, in a, in a spirit of levity, um, I have to let this stuff go and I can't, 
and I can't also burden other people who might've been having a great day and they scroll on my feed and now they're, they're confronted with a horror, right? Mm -hmm. I have to be mindful that there's pregnant people that are black and that are like about to deliver and they're going to see that. Right. And so it's like, there's a, there's a, you know, it's like a two-sided coin because you want to amplify, but you also want to make sure to protect. I know, but I think what you're saying is so powerful because, you know, you said something about the radical joy of black Mm -hmm. motherhood. And I think that that, you know, and and as you were speaking about ancestors and and the fact that they didn't get to have that same security in knowing that their children were their children, they would keep them that same freedom. Um, What I find really remarkable is even today, I mean, the objectification, the dehumanization of black women's bodies is is a constant. And yet you have demanded, and and I find this inspiring, I find this revolutionary, you have demanded ownership and power over your body and your journey mm-hmm. for women, for women of all colors, of all shapes, of all sizes, of all choices. And I, and I find that to actually be the most incredible thing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, I think I, that's why we need, when it said you're a wellness leader, I was like, no, it's a lot more than that. You are revolutionizing the sense of, you know, when women walk into a room, their, 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 their voice, their power in themselves to say, this isn't right. This isn't how I'm feeling. And, and to have the tools to actually be able to exercise choice and to exercise power. And so in that sense, I'd love for you to kind of unpack a little bit when you do talk about radical joy and, and this yeah. revolutionary power mm-hmm. of womanhood, mm-hmm. what that means to you. Yeah. So for me, it's like, you know, so a lot that comes up for me and in, and in community and, and just even like with friends and family, right, is like, okay, you know, I have someone in my life who had a surgery, um, was really pushing themselves too much. And I was like, what would happen? Like, what would you, um, what would you be able to, um, embrace if you just slowed Mm -hmm. down? Right. Like what would happen if you just like, didn't pick up your phone, didn't email, just ate and slept and watched Netflix like that's like, what would, what would, what would you gain? Right. And, um, and, it was like really hard for her to do. She ended up doing it, but she only ended up doing it because I said these words. I said to her that, you know, I know you're struggling with this idea of taking care of yourself, of setting a boundary for yourself, um, of loving yourself. But I have to remind you that it's not um, just a choice. It's a responsibility because it is the gift that you pay back our ancestors who did not have a choice of whether or not they could rest, who did not have a choice of whether or not they, they could, you know, take a nap, who did not have the choice to, um, who did not have ownership and, and agency over their bodies, who did not have bodily Mm -hmm. autonomy. Their bodies were literally working machines. And they worked at the behest of others. And so you who get to choose whether you pour yourself into something to the point where you're broken down, like that's a choice at this point, right? So I think now what we have to do is is look to see like, how am I participating in this capitalist delusion that is rendering me sick? And, and how do I find my way unraveling? How do I unravel myself from this? 
and how do I um, then set a new, a new path forward, right? Um, intentional in how I move so that I can protect myself because the most important thing, you know, really as I think about it is that we design lives that we don't need to escape from. And, wow. and what is happening now is right. Like we're engaging in a life that we need to take a vacation. We need to do this. Yeah. And we learn this by the way from whiteness, right? We learn that like, oh, we have this life. We, we push our, we, we start to like, we've, we've all embraced this idea of working to the bone and then you go play, right? Then you go to some place else. You go to some, you vacation somewhere else, right? And then you come back. And you continue to do these things that are really bad for you. I mean, if you think about like pre-COVID, right? It was, it was really just well, But even now, I mean, even now, you know, what you're saying is, is so, I, I honestly, I'm going to sound like a broken record because everything you say, I'm like, I, wow. You know, and, and I don't mean that in a, my parents were immigrants. They moved to Canada in the early 1980s. And I remember my dad would work himself to the bone and it is in no way a comparison, but as you're, as you're telling this story, it was always this sense that because you came to this country, you had to prove that you were worthy. And the only way you proved you were of value is with what you contributed to a dominant society that didn't respect or see you anyways. That's right. And and that was kind of, so, so it was get the best marks, perform the best, do a job that is in service of the community, work nonstop, prove that you are of value. Yep. And I think what you're saying is so powerful because it's, you don't need to, you're, you could be you're already enough. Exactly. And, and I think for so many people of color, of, you know, minorities, immigrants, refugees who, who are constantly told you know, in every way, the, the day-to-day comments, the media, the, as you were saying, the, the, the trauma porn where people are sharing these videos without really recognizing that there are young men and mothers and fathers staring at it and thinking like, you know, my God, this, this could be my child or this is mm-hmm. my child. You know, I, I find it, I, I think if anything were to come out of this moment mm. and, you know, COVID, Black Lives Matter, all, it is a recognition that what we are doing is, is not only unjust in, in that historical sense, but we can't build on it. It, can't, it, it doesn't work. It's, no. it's broken at the core. Um, totally. And there is no way, you know, that, that building a life you can't escape from isn't possible if, if, if our community and our society doesn't even see people as equal. Right. Unless, you know, so I just, I, I really like them. I mean, everything you say, I'm like, I need to write that down. And I'm like, okay, good. It's recorded. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, I think it's real. I mean, I think I, you know, I look at, um, I look at things like, you know, the fact that I'm in a neighborhood, right. And like, everybody's left and I'm like, well, where did they go? And so many people went to their parents' house or to the beach or all these. And I'm like, wow. Like the fact that that's not accessible to everybody, right? Like, I mean, I'm yeah. next week going to go to the beach, right? But the, the idea though, I don't have like a home that I'm just going to go, right, escape to. But there's this idea that it's, you know, the outdoors are for certain mm-hmm. people. Vacationing is for certain people, you know, like all this stuff. And again, we internalize these beliefs around what's possible mm-hmm. for ourselves. And so when you talk about the care 
And we talk about like, you know, the, the radical ways in which we can embrace who we are through love of the self. It's like, yeah, it's like knowing that, yeah, I also deserve to like put my feet in some water. And I also deserve to go and like look and see the variety of birds. I mm -hmm. also deserve to like listen to the leaves rustle through the wind or the trees. Like I deserve that because I'm also breathing, you know? And I think that it does not have to be like you gotta jump on a plane to find your mm -hmm. salvation. Like we need to, like your mom does, put your hands in that soil and repot the plants in your home. That is also a means of grounding, but also a means of escape, right? And so well, it's, I think that's important for us too. No, it's so interesting. My, growing up, I actually, um, Ranel Kelly-Ubi, who's the CEO of Effectiva, which is this AI company. We, I had an interview with her the other day and we spoke a little bit about self-care. She's mm. the daughter of, you know, she's raised in Egypt, moved to the States and, um, and culturally growing up for me, self-care was not a thing. It is not yeah. a thing. My right. mother does not know what self, like my mother's like, I cared for you. That was my, that like, was my self-care. Yeah, that's, it. you know, so she, and, and I remember even now, like the idea of bubble baths and, you know, um, face masks is not for me. I'm, I'm not a person who enjoys baths. So for me, that doesn't make sense as self-care. Right. right. And one day I was, I was talking with my mom and saying, you know, I've never really learned what this looks like. And at that exact point, she was gardening mm. and she's sitting there, she's humming to herself and gardening. And I realized like, I'm having this conversation kind of with myself, kind of with her. Right. And I realized I was kind of interfering on her moment of self-care. That's mm. what it looks like. Mm. And so and then I started watching HGTV, which people do not understand, but I'm telling you. Is that your self-care? It's my self-care now. I don't know. Latham, tell me if it's wrong. I love it. That's amazing. I literally watch HGTV and I'm like, I don't know if it's the immediate um, gratification of like yeah. seeing this like bare boned thing. And, so, and I'm not even a house. I don't like home building or houses have zero construction spirit in my body, but I like seeing the difference. I like mm. seeing the difference in a garden. I like, I like seeing the way that when we put our mind to it, we can build something incredible. Right. Yes. Um, and with urgency. And so to hear you say, you know, self-care looks different for different people. It might be putting your feet in water you know, it, it might be gardening. It might be yeah. just turning your phone off and having Hello. a night to yourself. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a non-capitalistic way to yes. look at it because everyone else is telling us, go buy something buy a face mask, buy this new, these new sweats. Mm -hmm. This is what self-care looks like. Go to the spa. And you're saying, no, self-care is just, you pick what it looks like. You pick what it's it about looks you. like. But you know what I also would say, um, and something that I feel like when we look at sort of um, religious and spiritual traditions, and certainly something I see um, as part of Islam, is there is like built-in self-reflection time. Mm -hmm. You know, their prayer it, you know, reverence, like prostration, like stopping what I'm doing to connect with the divine five times a day, like that is self-care, you know, fasting and like basically saying, I'm going to really not be on all like social, this, this, I'm yeah. going to essentially take myself out of this physical realm so that I can connect with consciousness and I can be, I can basically create myself as a channel of clarity like that's built in. And so mm -hmm. I feel like there's so many beautiful um, ways that we can, and, and I think um, paths that we can look to for the wisdom 
that many of us have lost or many of us never even had tethered to because we just weren't grown up in it. But, you know, in my upbringing, I was exposed to so many um, traditions. You know, my mom would take us to like, sometimes we go to temple or, you know, we go to masjid or wherever it was. And so I was able to like learn a lot by Mm -hmm. seeing how people showed reverence for the divine. And when we, but the reverence, like it's an invitation and it's an invitation to self-care, but it's also like an appointment. Like you can Mm -hmm. show up in this way and it's a direct line to God, which is animating your spirit, which Mm -hmm. means that like, if I am obedient to what I was put on this earth to do, guess what? Like I also will be more attuned to what it is that I need to thrive. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know what my vitamins and medicine, I know what my medicine is. Like I know what it is because I'm also attuned to what I'm supposed to do here. So I know also what it's not. And so I think yeah. for many people, a good starting point is figure out what it's not. Yeah. Like it might not be easy to say, okay, what is it? What's my thing? And I love that you brought up bubble baths because like, yeah, you, we're not talking about bubble bathing your problems away. Right. We're not talking about bubble baths. Those are amazing for Instagram. But we're really talking about checking in with yourself on a moment to moment basis and saying, Hey, what would be the best choice for me to make right now? Like Mm -hmm. what's going to serve me now? And that's like, I feel like when we ask that question, that's like asking God, it's like, please like work through me and Mm -hmm. please tell me, you know, what it is that I need now please order my steps now, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're just asking God to help inform us when we don't even know, right? And so sometimes we know like I shouldn't be doing this or engaging in that and and it's clear. And that's self-care too, creating the boundaries. But other Mm -hmm. times it's like, it's being open. And when we can be open, like I talked about in the beginning, like if we can be expansive, then we can let more come in. Yeah you know, through our sieve and the things that don't belong will, right? They won't pass through and the things that belong will wash over us. And so I want us to think about like how we can be open to what might be our medicine and what might be healing for us and, and know that, you know, trying new things and exploring and um, all of this is part of, I think, a, a powerful journey, but it doesn't have to be like, you go buy stuff and now that's self-care or you go do this thing. You know, one of the most powerful things I think came out of, you know, like the Black Panther movement, for instance, was that, you know, they put together what we'll call these um, survival programs. And the survival programs were so amazing because they had like over 60 of them. And that one was like acupuncture, they had mm-hmm. yoga, they had massage therapy, they had um, obviously this, the school um, the school, the free school food programs, which then became a, a federal program um, that was copied but never credited mm-hmm. to them, obviously, in the United States. And so many amazing programs, but all of them, so they were called survival programs. But I think that we should be calling, you know, really like in, in the legacy of the work they were doing, those were like programs about thriving, right? Mm-hmm. Those are programs about taking care of ourselves, those are programs about really like community care. And so, so we, we have a legacy. This is not new, even though it's like popular now, you know, the term, we have a legacy of, of this work, you know? And, and it's also in each of our, in each of our cultures, there's a, there's a legacy of, of reverence, of slowing down, of turning inward. And, and so it doesn't have to be that we 
do something or something traditional, but like whatever makes us feel attuned, whatever makes mm-hmm. us feel like transcendent, whatever makes us feel like we're at ease is what we should be allowing ourselves. And so I think, um, I think it's about like doing the work to discover the things that make you feel joy and, and because that's your birthright, right? And so if we can link into joy as much as possible, it can really carry us through the times that we're living in because these, these are challenging times, but I think easier met when we can be um, in a state of more joy. I think that's, you know, I, your, your mention of faith and, and how this is embedded in so many of our different cultures and, and belief systems reminds me of, you know, um, a belief in Islam that your body is on loan to you from God. Yes. It's your vessel on earth. And so taking care of it isn't necessarily for you. It's for God. That's why you eat well. That's why we fast. That's what, like this idea that, that this is, this is something that you are protecting because God gifted it to you for your time on earth. And I always find that when I'm, when I'm having difficulty convincing myself to take care of myself, I find that that has been actually one of the most powerful ways to be like, no, 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 this isn't for you. This is religious. (laughs) This is your, this is your duty. And so I, you know, I, I find sometimes, and, and I only have a couple more questions to ask you, but I'm, I'm going to toss this one in because it's one that is on my mind often. In a world where we are told our value is what we deliver. Mm-hmm. And in a world where we know we cannot deliver if we're not taking space and time to heal and to learn and to know about ourselves. Yeah. How do we negotiate the two? Mm-hmm. Right? Like we, many of us, many people don't have the comfort of saying, I'm going to take today off. Right. They'll lose a job. They can't feed their kids. They'll lose their right. home. So how do we negotiate living in a world where we are told our value is in the work we do, but our body is telling us, I need a break. We need to take a break. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah. So, so beautiful. Such a thoughtful question and so real for what people are feeling right now and, and what people are being faced, right? Um, with job loss, with people furloughed, people home, people with their kids, you know, um, yeah, you don't get time off. And I think what it speaks to, um, I would like to talk to first, and then I want to answer that is that, you know, we've really um, done such a incredible job building systems against caregiving um, in the West. So in a time of crisis and a time like COVID and a time where you know, we should be able to lean on community. Uh, we cannot. And even in the ways that are intangible, but like very energetic, we've also destroyed that, right? And so, you know, our, the healing arts and people who we should be able to call upon, mm-hmm. um, you know, folks working in the spiritual realm or in religious spaces or healing um, have also been sort of like pushed to the sides. And so, yeah. so we don't have, so there's nobody to like turn your head and lean on, uh, literally or figuratively, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's one piece of it is that like folks should know like nothing's their fault and that, um, you know, things were built this way so that we could be basically indebted to um, a system that um, really wants to just reap all that you have um, until mm-hmm. you're bone dry. And um you know, if we think about like those of us who work within uh, corporations, like all managerial systems um, mirror uh, how slaves were managed on, um, on 
uh, plantations, but really like, um, you know, forced work camps, right? Mm -hmm. um, all managerial systems are, are based in and rooted in um, how uh, slaves were, enslaved people were managed, hundreds and sometimes thousands of them in these properties. And what do you so, mean by that? So like how they design um, management, like how it's tiered, hierarchy. How, like hierarchy, hierarchical, yeah. Methods. Yeah, I know, I, I was like the hierarchy. Yeah, right, hierarchical um, uh, management systems, all of that stems from slavery. And so like, so think about like how people are, um, so in terms of like how to get the most out of a enslaved person, mm -hmm. what their productivity looks like, what punishment looks like, like all these things and so, creating essentially a model like that um, and layering that on top of like some of our more, um, you know, uh, profitable companies, you know, in the U S like that's, that's where they're, yeah. that's where they're using their, that's where, that's where the, the rudimentary, mm -hmm. um, you know, organizational model is. And so to know that we know that we're going in here as people who are not valued, right. Already. Mm -hmm. They have to give you insurance. They have to, you know, they have to do these things by law, but like they don't care about you, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, your manager might or your supervisor might, but guess what? Manager and supervisor are overseers, right? Mm -hmm. So these are people, yeah, you might have a great relationship, but guess what? They are trying to squeeze as much as they can out of you. Yeah. And so all that to say, right? Like we don't have a choice necessarily with where, where we work or how we work or the hours or what have you, but what we can control is the time that we can spend with family. Like when we do have that time, what does that look like? How do we be present? You know, when we, when we are off of work, you know, how do we decompress so that when we show up to be with family, that the choice isn't necessarily to drink alcohol or to find an escape. The, the choice is to be present. Like mm -hmm. what do we need in terms of support so that we feel like we can show up and be around our kids that we've been having to homeschool all day? Um, what would it look like to take a walk as a family or do family exercise together? Like, what are the things that we can do to kind of create a, a, a new normal where things are really not, you know, like, how can we design for that? And so, so, the, so what I would ask people is to like really lean into their creativity now, you know, what are the things that like really, um, that they love to do that they could never do, but now they're home or now they're, they have a little bit extra time. And not that it's extra time, meaning that they're just sitting around, but extra time that they could pour into something that would be fulfilling. Um, is it a new job that you, or a new career path that you hopefully want to explore one day? Is it like a, you know, a side hustle? Is it like that you just are really good at baking and you want to do that? Is it gardening, right? Like, what is it that you could do, right? To, and it doesn't have to be that you buy something. Like, I'm not saying like, go, go buy a Peloton bike and like, you know, run through your credit cards to try to, you know, nothing like this, but more like, what is something that I can do every day? Like your mother was humming and, and changing her pot, like potting her plants. She was getting her feet in the soil. Like mm -hmm. that, you can just say, I'm dedicating 30 minutes to stepping outside and sitting under a tree, or I'm going to read a book with my daughter, or mm -hmm. I'm going to run a bubble bath for my son and just like listen to him like laugh, you know, like what, are, what are the things, right? The joy. And so it can be little things um, that when we're present that I feel like bring, bring grace. Um, and I think it's important for us to also understand that like, you know, when we have committed 
ourselves and, and it's not always willingly, you know, to, to participate in the sort of delusion, right. That is capitalism and, and, um, and really like white supremacy, right. When we, when we participate in it, um, and how we show up for it, that, um, it's, it's not always our choice, but, you know, to know that like, maybe this is where we have to be. Like, this is, this is what it is. I have to show up to this job. if I'm going to have money to take care of my family. Right. So nobody's ever going to say like somebody shouldn't do that, but mm-hmm. there are things outside of that that are fulfilling that we can make a part of our life. And, um, and so and I would cycles. Yeah. I would invite people to do that, to, to figure out like, how can we lean into family? Because I know one thing is that, um, you know, individualism will teach us that like, you know, we're units, you're a unit, I'm a unit, mm-hmm. we're separate, my people over here, yours over there. Um, it'll also teach us that family, you know, doesn't really exist outside of a 2.5 children and, and two parents, yeah. you know, one male, one female, and, you know, heterosexual, <laughs> cisgender, you know, Maybe like they want to dog. teach us that. And they have a dog and they have a white picket fence <laughs> or, you know, um, in New York, a regular fence, I don't know. Yeah. So they, they teach that. <laughs> But then they don't teach like what, what extended family could look like. What does yeah. it look like to have community? And so, so then the, the, the last piece of that would be like, what's, what's community? Like who is in mm-hmm. your community? Who are your neighbors, right? Like we've gotten to know so many of our neighbors um, in the time of COVID and, and, and really like kind of see who, who lives around us yeah. um, in a way that we hadn't before because of the type of neighborhood I live in where I lived before, I knew all of my neighbors. My son knew everybody that like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could leave my son with one of like six people that I deeply trusted that were all on one block. Mm -hmm. Like if I was away and people didn't see me for two days, they would be like, oh, we're gonna call the police. We didn't see you. Like you have to let one of us know that you're leaving. That's the kind of community I was in, right? And so all this to say like, this is possible. It is possible to have somebody look after you. And, um, And if you're someone who needs that right now, it's okay. Because all of us need, need a grounded community. We need to feel supported. We need to feel like we belong. We need to feel needed. Exactly. And so so if, if, if you're going to feel fulfilled by feeling like you're part of something, then I would look locally to see how I can plug into something in my community so I can get that sense of fulfillment. It's, That'll help you no matter what you're doing work-wise. Yeah, no, it's one of the most, um, I think one of the biggest differences between between kind of the way I was raised and the cultural notion that it takes a village to raise a family yes. and that your mom isn't just your mom, but your aunts are your mom and your grandma's your mom and your older sister's your mom. And literally you have so many people you can turn to. And there is this sense of community versus this idea, you know, as I've gotten older where, where it's like, okay, well, what are you doing? And, and the sense of like individualism and, mm-hmm. and that self-actualization is about just the self. Right. Um, which, which is, which is different. And I do hope, you know, one of the great hopes, and I, I, I um, was joking around with my mom about this. I said, you know, one of the things I really hope comes out of 2020 is people understand that you can't raise a kid. One, two people cannot raise conscious and connected and compassionate kids. You need Not a community. by themselves. Mm-mm. You need a community. So I am hoping that that is, that, that the recognition of the amount of unpaid labor women put in the, the, the appreciation for that work and that we begin to actually create community in new ways, yes. that it becomes a priority. Has so Latham, I have two last questions for you and they are my two favorites in every interview. And the first is, if I asked you, you know, if you were to bring one idea, one book, one 
um, person, mm-hmm. one anything to this community of listeners, if you were to bring one thing to the table, what would it be? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Wow, that's a good one. Um, I'm gonna say, um, I'm gonna say be soft. I would say a book or whatever, but I just feel like um, we're so oriented to do right? Mm-hmm. And like, oh my God, like, okay, let me read that book. Let me read that book. Let me like advance myself and continue. But like, I just think that right now people need the permission to be soft and to, um, and to slow down. And we're living at such an accelerated pace. And um, it's my commitment, you know, daily, I have to um, like pace in a way that's aligned with where my spirit is right now and not like like really let the world push me to move fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is not necessarily um, aligned with the outcomes of, you know, what a corporate structure desires. But I think for myself as an individual, but also the people who I touch in community, I have to be well. And I think a lot of us are not well because we're living at a, we're moving at the pace that everything else and everyone else is when we need to find our own pace. And so I would just invite, um, you know, softness and stillness as a way to recalibrate mm-hmm. and, um, and to anchor into a rhythm that feels good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love that. Be soft. Yeah. Be soft. Uh, it's, um, I think this year has has definitely been a year where everyone kind of is beginning to ask themselves, you know, do I have around me in my home, in my in my immediate space, do I have around me what I need to feel yeah. whole? And so I think mm-hmm. you know, be soft is such a powerful message. Um, I wonder, as a leader, as a as a black woman leader, as a woman leader, as a leader in every right, just as a, a person who, who motivates, inspires, educates, um, and pioneers, honestly. Some mm. difficult conversations that other people don't want to have. What does being at the table mean to you? Mm. So interesting. And it's so beautiful. I mean, thank you for that, like, affirmation, but I see that in you. So, um, it's really nice to um, be lifted in that way. Um, so being at the table. So I think um, a few things about the table, right, is like uh, we know it to be um, a force and I would say um, a place or a space that like um, our ancestors had to serve at, right? And we're not invited, but like we're um, in service or in servitude, right? And, um, and so I think about like just, you know, being intentionally shut out, but like only brought in to be um, mined for resources, right? So it's like, you know, I'm here to serve you, your fish or whatever, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I'm here to make the table. Um, And I feel like when we think about this as a metaphor, if you think about like every 
table, right? That where there are people sitting around it, the folks who made it possible for, you know, who laid your flatware and your napkins and put all the glass and the stemware in place and who put the floral and all those things are always um, people of color, you know, and largely women who have really laid the foundation for them people to essentially climb over or step onto us to, um, to then sit down and feast, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they get up to leave and then we clean up. After and Right? So I think about that um, on one hand, right? And how it's like um, not, is something that like in, in one part of me wants to reject as a concept that I don't want to like, you know, come sit at. And I also think about it like um, this and that, you know, when people are talking about it now, it's like this idea like, oh yeah, like make room for us and, or, you know, we want to have space. And I'm like, do we? Cause like, it feels like people pulling up like lawn chairs, you mm-hmm. know, to sit at a table where everybody else is like comfortable and there's no place setting for you. Like, I don't want to come if I'm not really, if I wasn't really invited, if I don't have like a place setting, if my name is not on a note card, <laughs> I don't want to come. I want to come because I get to sit like everybody else does. Right. And so when we talk about making space to mm-hmm. pull up a chair. I think what we're talking about is making room, which is actually extending the leaf on the table yeah. and then making an extra place setting or two for those extra people who are coming. And then making room is also asking their dietary restrictions and things of that nature, right? That's making room. And so that you're prepared for them and, and ready to welcome them when they come. And so that's what diversity and inclusion looks like is not just pulling up a lawn chair. It is getting you know the place setting you know, making a note card for you and asking what you want to eat when you arrive, Mm -hmm. you know, that is making room. But then I also think on the other hand, with the table situation, like why are we structuring around a rectangular object? You know, why are we sitting in chairs? Why are we not just like on cushions on the floor in a circle and all together like we were when our lives depended upon it and when we evolved, right? Like, why are we not around a fire? Why are we not around, you know, you know, some food on the floor and eating with our hands and kissing each other and toasting wine? Like, why are we not doing that, right? So I think about like, well, we can do it our way, right? And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a table, but we can, we can sort of gather around each other and we can mm-hmm. gather around a new concept for what it looks like to build together and be together and be in community and in service leadership, um, which is what this moment calls for, right? And so, so then I think about that and that like, we don't need a table to do that. And, and we can community without having to sit at, um, you know, at, at a sort of um, almost like an altar that was built by um, people who thought themselves to be masters and who forced other people to work for them and made themselves seem uh, superior um, and, and, and in doing so had to make other people feel inferior. Like we don't want to sort of, I don't, I mean, I don't think that what the idea is, is that we want to show up in the legacy of that and that we want to actually sit in the um, aftermath of that. I think we want to 
sort of dismantle it, throw the table out, let somebody repurpose the wood, turn it into something else. And that we want to move the table out and see what the space looks like when there's nothing else in the room. And now we're all in this room together. And now how do we design a future together? Um, that's what I would like to see. You know, I would like to lean into what's possible when we move the table out the room. That is incredible. It's, you've answered my second question of what does it mean to invite others to the table? Mm. Because you basically said, throw the table out and let's just have this open space. I think I have to, I have to say, I've actually had so many debates about mm. the table. Yeah. Um, and as we were, as we were actually thinking, okay, what, what do we call this community? What do we call this space? Yeah. Um, the reason at the table came up was because it was always a space where when I was at any table, the assumption was that I didn't belong there. Mm. And then very rarely did people who look like me or you, were they at those decision-making tables? And so yeah. to me, it, it, it is about, it is about designing those, transforming them, recreating them, these yeah. democratically designed tables where yes, you know, we do talk about leadership and we talk about commitment and we talk about work and we talk about being in service, but we talk about it with compassion. We talk about power yes. and we talk about what it means for community. Yes. And, and so I, and a huge part of it actually comes back even religious when I see like these tables of all these religious figures who are all, always men. Always. Um, making these decisions. And I think, where, where are we at the table? Mm-hmm. And how do we tell young girls, young boys, young people that, that they can make decisions, that they can hold power um, yes. and that they can invite other people to it as well. That's and so right. I, I hear you wholeheartedly. Um, and I hear you too. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I think it's so powerful because I think a huge part of it is maybe I didn't even maybe I didn't even imagine that we could throw the table away. Mm. So maybe that's something I take home where I'm like, wait a second. Um, maybe maybe also, the difference is that we all sit around on the floor and, and eat with their hands and have conversations. And, um, but, but yeah, but as long as there's power, I want, yes. I want people who look like us and yes. who are not at the table to know it's a, it's a place they belong and they design and they create and they build and they yes. grow. And um, yeah, and I, 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 I pray that we get to the point. Um, and I think maybe we are at the point where we just throw it all away and say, okay, how can we be in service of one another point blank period? Yeah. Um, yeah. And how can we all see each other as worthy of leadership and power yes. and as vessels for that? But that yes. is so powerful. It's going to stick with me. I know all day. I'm already yeah. now. I'm like, hmm, around the fire. <laughs> yes, around the fire. But even even with table too. Like, I mean, I hear you because because what I see is that you know some people do have to go and sit in this place so that we have representation and also so they can go in undercover. You know what I mean? So they can go in. And represent infiltrate. and infiltrate. Yes. So, so I see what you mean too, which is like, it's like, it's, it's being fully present, fully who you are um, and showing up and showing everybody who's there that you belong and also showing everybody who's not there that knows you're there, that, they belong. that we belong. Right. So I totally exactly. see that. 
And um, my one issue, my one issue is when we're told, and I, I've had the, so much in the women's rights movement, this debate of like, okay, we build our own table. We build our own, we, you know, we have our, oh, and I'm like, yeah, but, but all of those decisions about women are being made for women in places of traditional power where we're right. not. Where we're not at. Yes. No, where we're minorities or black mm-hmm. people, Muslims, indigenous people, take your pick. And so until we, until we in, infiltrate is probably a bad word. No, infiltrate's <laughs> but, a great word. Okay, good. Cause that's the only word that's coming to mind. But in, until we are part of those and, and not that we buy into the norms and the histories and the injustices until we recreate them. Yep. Until we're there and until people within our community know they can be there, know that they are, their leadership is not, um, it's not invalid because it's different. Our voices are not invalid because we are different, that everything that we have cultivated and created has power and has merit. To me, it's, it's so important to say, we're not going to kind of have these only these side conversations where all the real decisions still get made elsewhere. It's, we're going to have our own conversations. We're going to recreate the dominant conversations, we're just going to take over. We're going to take over all take the spaces. Over, I agree with taking over and, and, and expanding and, and just taking up more space. Exactly. And I also- And defining the agenda. Yes. And I also agree though with, with instilling in ourselves and with our youth that um, because you're not there does not mean that you're not important, Right because they did not invite you does not mean that like the party's going to be good or that, or that you're, you know what I mean? So I, I also want that we don't feel, cause here's the thing too, right? Like in our work, um, like I could have, I guess, joined an organization, but I was like, I have this calling and it's telling me, and I'm like being led to create this thing. And, and had I not done that, like we would not have the hundreds and the hundreds and the hundreds of doula siblings from around the world. And so I think that like part of us also has to know like when you do create and you, and you really abide your path and you let God, you know, order it, that um, the obedience I believe is, um, I think it is rewarded. I think it is rewarded. And I think that the um, visibility comes, I think the people come, I think you create a vacuum. And those very people who are having these conversations in these rooms come to you, you know? And I think that also happens. And so I think it's a, I think, I think there's a space for both of these things so that while we're dismantling and while we're infiltrating and while we're, you know, essentially, right? We are also building something, we're building the future. And and, and when they come, it's built. When they come yeah. where we're at, they're like, oh shit, this has been happening. <laughs> they know? bring their folding chair. <laughs> they bring their, they, we were like, no folding chairs allowed, sit on the floor, right? But, <laughs> so, so we, but again, I think it's both, right? And so I feel like if you feel, you know, and this goes with everything, right? There's no one way. If you feel called to go in these spaces, if you feel like, you know, spirit is flanking you and covering you so that when you enter into these spaces that you feel, you feel safe and you feel committed and able and energized, then go there. You know what I'm saying? Because then that work gets done. Right. And then if you feel like I cannot do that, but what I'm being called to do and what spirit's asking me to do is build this thing. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going over here to build it. 
or spirit's telling me to go help this person build this thing, go there because then that way the work is getting done. So we just have to figure out, you know, if we're we're people who are, yeah. Am I dismantling or am I building? Like, where am I? So I can go in the direction of the work and make sure that I contribute to it getting done. And so I think it's definitely both. Um, But people have to figure out where they are, I think. Yeah, no, I hear you wholeheartedly. I am, I'm, I am so glad, honestly, that you took the time to have this conversation. I'm so glad you, you invited me to my little table, um, and and we could have this con because I think, I I honestly think there is a world like, and I I'm going to kind of um, attempt to demand that you include revolutionary somewhere in your bio because You're hilarious. <laughs> I know because seriously, the way that you think, no, Latham, honestly, the way that you think and the way that you force others to see themselves is incredible. Mm. And so I so appreciate you taking the time today. Um, and everyone can find you on Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, and I'm not Facebook. as good on Twitter, unfortunately. Okay, okay. 